Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week, we are airing an up-to-date episode where we talk about science in the news, although, as our listeners know, we are a COVID-free zone, for the most part, here at Inquiring Minds, so this news will have nothing to do with COVID-19. Instead, we're going to talk about the news you might have missed because you were scrolling through information about the coronavirus. Joining me is Adam Bristol. Welcome back, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. So um, one of the things that caught my eye this week is actually a study by a friend of ours. Okay, please. So Matt Walker is a friend of ours who is also a sleep researcher at the University of California at Berkeley. We've actually had him on Inquiring Minds before talking about his excellent book called Why We Sleep. And he actually just and uh, his students, collaborators, published a study this week in Current Biology in which they showed that the amount of deep sleep, that is non-rapid eye movement sleep, that older adults engage in can predict a couple years later the buildup of beta amyloid in their brains. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So that's you know important because the buildup of beta amyloid can be one of the precursors and one of the signs of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that in Alzheimer's disease, there are sleep disturbances. So I think for a long time, we've wondered which is the chicken and which is the egg. Is it that the degenerating brain causes sleep disturbances, which then also confound with the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease? Or is it that poor sleep quality actually is one of the driving factors for the degeneration that leads to the symptoms of the disease? Can this study disentangle those two hypotheses? Well, I think it's interesting that at least it's a longitudinal study where you can see a forecast. So basically what he did is he, um, along with Bill Jagus, who's a public health policy professor at UC Berkeley as well, they have a large cohort of healthy older adults in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And um, Matt and his student, uh, Joseph Weiner, yes, Joseph Weiner, asked 32 of these participants to spend a night in the sleep lab, and they measured uh, uh, how much deep sleep they were getting. And then they looked at the beta amyloid accumulation over time over the next couple of years, because now we have these imaging tools that in which you can see in a healthy 
or a, a, a live person, right? You don't have to wait for pathology to look at um, the amyloid buildup. We, there are these imaging techniques. And so they saw that people who had poorer quality, who had less spent less time in deep sleep or had more fragmented sleep early on, tended to also have more buildup in the years that followed. Hmm. And so at the time when they were first began to be assessed, do they have any types of mild cognitive impairment or anything that might be precursors to Alzheimer's? Nothing that was measurable. So as far as I could tell from uh, from the description in the study, we, um, there wasn't anything that would have predicted that uh, they would eventually go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. There's no MCI. Um, you know, they were they were considered healthy. And so, you know, there was no reason to think that any of those uh, individuals would ultimately end up showing the disease. Uh, and so what Matt and his, his um, grad student are showing is that, in a sense, sleep quality can be used as a biomarker to predict future disease process. Um, and there's hope here because it suggests that if you can improve your sleep quality, which is another thing that Matt is really interested in helping people do, you might be able to stave off the disease or at least push it further out into the future. Did many of the uh, participants take sleep aids? That's a good question. I don't know the details of that. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I would assume that if they're healthy, and of course, if they're in the sleep lab, that they're not taking sleep aids, at least during the course of the study. So, But whether or not they take sleep aids in general, uh, I guess that's a, an open question. Yeah, no, that's, what an what a incredible study. It's one that I'm sure took several years uh, to recruit and run. So it's these types of longitudinal studies are just really critical for understanding at least the progression of the disease and some correlates of disease progression. And I think what, what what Matt always reminds us when we talk about, you know, look, there are some people who are long sleepers. They spend a lot of time in bed, but they don't feel like they really are well rested. And, you know, there's this controversy about whether long sleepers, uh, you know, whether, whether spending too much time in bed can somehow be damaging to your health. And Matt always points out that unless you actually know how the quality of sleep is affected um, in the individual, you know, you can't really say that. And I think this this study, because they did the sleep staging, sort of definitively shows that it's this deep stage of sleep, this uninterrupted, uh, you know, length of non-REM sleep that is really important. It's not just spending, you know, going in and out of light sleep for eight hours. That's not good enough. That's not restorative. Um, but spending, you know, hours or more in deep sleep is what really seems to make a difference. Um, and so it, it also, you know, I like because it provides further evidence for this, one of the restorative theories of sleep, which is this idea that when you're sleeping, especially in these deep sleep stages, um, your brain is actually washing out, you know, the, the, the byproducts of metabolic activity that happened during the day. And so if you don't have that restorative period, you know, those kinds of metabolic byproducts build up and, you know, you get problems like Alzheimer's disease later on. I mean, that's an interesting uh, point because it's possible these data would show across all individuals their total sleep duration, mm -hmm. perhaps self-reported, perhaps something objectively measured was equivalent. There were no mm -hmm. differences. Mm -hmm. But when you look into the details, you'd find that the sweep, sleep quality and the time in deep non-REM stages, the restorative uh, uh, stages of sleep, differed dramatically. So it's not just a question of sleep duration. It's really a duration of sleep quality, as Matt always says. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, recently I've had tr some, some troublesome nights of sleep and I uh, can definitely see how that affects me the next day cognitively. You'd think that these would be the types of hypotheses now. Again, these are correlational studies, but you could 
take these findings and move them into animal studies mm-hmm. and start to try to manipulate sleep duration, sleep quality, intervene in the sleep cycle in different animal models mm-hmm. and see if does that impact some of the um, biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease as well as mm-hmm. behavioral measures of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and I think people people have been doing that in the mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, um, but I think it's still unclear sort of what what ultimately the mechanisms are and 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 so forth. Hey, it's Indre talking to you after I recorded this conversation with Adam. We had so many questions about Matt's study that I decided to give him a quick call. Here's that conversation. So Adam and I were chatting about your paper for our up-to-date this week, uh, the one that came out in Current Biology on September 3rd, because I know you have a lot of papers. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> Let's not rush to judgment on that. <laughs> um, and Adam was asking me some questions that I couldn't answer. So I thought we'd just give you a call and see if you can enlighten us. I will try. Uh, that's a tall order, but I will give it a good shot. So the first question I think is is one that everybody wants to know. We, you know, if it's not totally news that there's a relationship between sleep sleep quality and Alzheimer's disease, but I think what people have really struggled with is figuring out which is the chicken and which is the egg. And I wondered if you could speak to whether this study in particular sheds any light on what comes first, the sleep disturbance or whatever it is that's causing the degeneration. I think it's clear that it's a bi-directional relationship. Um, Looking at the animal work, some of the causal manipulations, um, it can go both ways that if you artificially overdrive the accumulation of beta amyloid in the brain, then you do as a consequence get sleep impairment and sleep disruption. But conversely, if you selectively deprive or disrupt sleep, particularly deep slow wave sleep or these big sort of powerful slow brainwaves during non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM sleep, um, then that leads to, as a consequence, an escalation in beta amyloid. So I think it's a bi-directional relationship from that evidence. And I, I should come on to mention the studies in humans, because I think that's a really important part. But for this study, it was actually a prospective study. So we measured their sleep at baseline. And then we just tracked um, over time, almost like time-lapse photography, the accumulation of beta amyloid in the brains of these um, older adults, these preclinical adults. Um, They had not yet transitioned into Alzheimer's disease. And what we found there was that there was something in sleep, in the electrical static of your sleep at night, there is a very specific dent in this electrical brainwave activity. And that dent uh, at baseline was able to future forecast how quickly the speed with which that beta amyloid is going to accumulate over years into the future. And so I think it's, you know, it's hyperbolic, but it's almost as though sleep provides a crystal ball that can tell you where you're going to be heading in terms of your trajectory of Alzheimer's disease pathology in the brain. Um, so in that way, it's sort of prospective, but it doesn't really solve the chicken and egg issue. Um, the animal studies started that, but then came some uh, truly remarkable causal studies in humans. Um, the first involved selectively depriving healthy adults of deep non-REM sleep for just one single night. And the next day they did a spinal cord puncture. They drew out some cerebrospinal fluid 
And immediately they could see an escalation in the amount of beta amyloid the next day after just one night of deep sleep disruption. Um, then a group from uh, the NIH, Nora Volkow's group, uh, did a total sleep deprivation study um, with healthy humans and then using a special PET scanning measure, they found an accumulation the next day again of beta amyloid, but now using a brain measurement itself, looking inside the brain rather than using that cerebrospinal fluid as a proxy. So those have been two, I think, striking and causal studies. Um, some recent studies demonstrating the same thing with blood biomarkers of beta amyloid if you deprive people of a night of sleep. So I think it does seem to translate from the animal work to the human work. I think that's an important step. But what we're really doing here is sort of a slightly different question. Um, is the sleep that you're having right now sensitive to the ability to you know, look into the future and tell you where your Alzheimer's disease pathology may be in two years, four years, eight years? That's really fascinating. And scary. <laughs> Those of us that are having it, sleep it disruptions. Is, it is scary. And, you know, I want to, I think that's a really important point, which is I don't want to get people, you know, more anxious about sleep than they necessarily need to be. We need to put this in context. Uh, just because we all have a bad night of sleep doesn't mean that we're now dramatically increasing our risk of Alzheimer's disease. That's not the case. Um, and everyone has a bad night of sleep. I have plenty of bad nights of sleep. So I don't want to, especially during this COVID era, um, you know, escalate people's fears and concerns. But I also think it's important to speak about what the science is telling us. And if you are having sleep problems very consistently, um, insomnia, difficulties with your sleep, disrupted sleep, then I think these types of conversations should motivate you to perhaps um, speak to your doctor. So um, one of the other questions I, I was wondering was whether you had any data as to um, whether the, the patients on, on, as they were following, as you were following up on them, were then taking any kind of sleep aids. Um, so maybe those that, that you measured had poor quality non-REM sleep, were they more likely to, you know, supplement their sleep with some kind of sleep aids? Great question. So we actually excluded participants on the basis of uh, them taking sleeping pills during uh, the course of the entire uh, longitudinal study, tracking them over years. So we wanted to bring people in who weren't currently taking prescription sleep medications. But that's not to say that they could not have been using, you know, over-the-counter non-prescription sleep supplements, firstly. So we we don't know that information. Second, we didn't understand or we didn't get information on their lifetime history of sleep aid use. So even though during the study period they were, um, none of them had been prescribed sleeping pills and none of them um, used them during the course of the study, uh, we didn't gain information about whether in the years, decades before they had been using sleep aids. So I think it is a, a, a potential weakness of the study. And I mentioned that because uh, we already know that poor sleep and insomnia are associated with a significantly high risk of developing dementia. And as for sleeping pills themselves, in truth, there are a few studies out there and it's a little bit mixed. Some of them suggest that sleeping pill use, particularly um, longer duration acting sleeping pills, um, 
is associated with a higher risk of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, whilst others don't. Um, and so I think the message there is if you are struggling with your sleep, do see your doctor. And right now, the American College of Physicians um, suggests that sleeping pills should actually not be the first line recommended treatment for insomnia. It should actually be something called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI for short, which is a psychological and cognitive treatment. You work with a therapist, and typically it's just as effective as sleeping pills in the short term, but it's actually much more uh, effective in the long term. Once you stop working with that therapist, um, the benefits continue. And CBTI has been used in healthy young people, but it's also been used in older adults too. And it does seem to have a benefit for older adults with insomnia. So I remember reading in your book, uh, Why We Sleep, that sleeping aids don't always put you into this deep, restorative, non-REM sleep. Are there any um, recent ones or ones that you've come across or or other kinds of sleep aids? Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I can he- imagine how CBTI would be more likely to restore your sleep in all of its stages compared with, say, a sedative um, or some other kind of pill. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, with CBTI, the sleep that you produce is your own. So it's natural um, sleep enhancement in that way. Um, And there's a variety of techniques that they use. It's sort of tailored to you, the individual, based on the difficulties that you're having. And you regain your confidence in sleep. And finally, your sleep doesn't control you, but you get back in the driving seat and you control your sleep. But we actually, you're right, The if we look at the electrical signature of your sleep when you're taking sleeping pills versus when you're having normal natural sleep, those two things aren't really the same. And we actually don't yet know if the cleansing system of the brain that happens during deep sleep. And it's this cleansing system. It's called the glymphatic system. It's almost like a sewage system of the brain that kicks into high gear during deep sleep. It washes away all of the metabolic detritus that's been building up throughout the day, including things such as beta amyloid. Um, Now, we don't yet know if the sleep that you have when you're taking sleeping pills is resulting in a less efficient cleansing mechanism at night. I think that would actually be a fascinating component. But right now, um, yeah, we actually just don't have the evidence as to whether or not those um, those pills would compromise such a system. But we do know that they don't necessarily produce the same electrical pattern of sleep when you're taking them versus when you're not. One of the things that has made Alzheimer's disease so notoriously difficult to uh, understand and, and provide a treatment for is because not everybody with the pathology shows symptoms in the same way. Like I I am always struck by the somewhat controversial now nun study where, you know, there was at least one nun in this nun study who, you know, was died over 100 years old, had, you know, was, was, was you know, c- cognitively intact and, and considered a leader. And yet her brain was riddled with Alzheimer's disease pathology. Um, is Do you have any sense of whether any of the um, I guess the patients that showed higher um, beta amyloid ended up converting to Alzheimer's disease later on, or where are we in terms of of that connection? So in this study, we started off with um, all patients were what we call um, amyloid negative. So they were um, in sort of Alzheimer's disease research. We typically can classify you into being 
amyloid negative or amyloid positive. And if you're positive, you're above a specific threshold, which means that you are now at significantly higher risk of going on to convert into Alzheimer's disease. And we started off with a preclinical population, all of whom were um, amyloid negative at the time. And I'll come back to why we did that as a choice in a second. Uh, during the course of the study, two of those participants did actually convert, which wasn't a high percentage of the population. And the mean duration that we studied them across was about four years. Now, as we're studying, I continue to study them, more of those are converting to amyloid positive. So we don't yet know what is causing in our cohort, at least regarding sleep, that conversion and that, um, that transition. But it does seem to be that there is something about the sleep at the baseline session that is predictive of the rate, the speed of accumulation, and thus the likelihood that you will convert over to being amyloid positive. Taking a step back, though, more generally to your question, amyloid continues to, I think, be no one wants to reject the idea that beta amyloid plaques are a component of the Alzheimer's disease pathology cascade. Um, it seems to be that they are precursors to then the development of a second toxic protein in the Alzheimer's equation, which is called tau protein. Um, they seem to forecast or foreshadow the development of tau and then tau is strongly associated with the final stage, which is neurodegeneration, which is death of brain cells. And it's that death of brain cells that ultimately is going to produce the symptomatology of Alzheimer's. So it's almost as though it begins with amyloid, then tau starts to happen in relationship to amyloid. And then when tau and amyloid have developed, then you get brain degeneration. And when you get that degeneration, you get cognitive decline and you start to get symptomatology. Yeah, now I see why you would have chosen <laughs> the beta amyloid as kind of the biomarker in, in the early stages um, for this particular study. That's right. It's sort of, you know, you want that canary in the coal mine early on. Um, and we also wanted to study this in a population. It's almost the, string, the most stringent test of the hypothesis, which is in Alzheimer's disease, when you've got that much beta amyloid, you may have a very strong signal to be associated with sleep. But the earlier and earlier in life that you look at people who are not in that sort of symptomatic stage, is, is it going to be harder to find sleep's signal? Um, that was the first reason that we sort of took a leap of faith and tried to do it in, at the time, clinically um, healthy adults. Um, the second reason is because if we can find that signal that sleep is this sort of forecasting agent and we already know it years ahead of time, if we're doing that in healthy or preclinical patients, then maybe there's still time to do something about it. And that's, I think, another reason why we wanted to start with um, people who were either at a very early stage or weren't showing any symptoms at this stage. Okay, one last question, which is um, people then who have converted into Alzheimer's disease and have sleep disturbances, they probably can't do CBTI because of their cognitive problems. Do you have a sense of whether there are any treatments that are in development or out there already that might try to help those people sleep better? Certainly people have tried to implement some of the CBTI practices from a caregiver perspective for the patient with Alzheimer's disease. But 
there are certain components of CBTI that do in, require someone who is cognitively intact. And so you're right, the, the sort of the potential benefit of CBTI is going to be lessened um, with an Alzheimer's patient. We are starting to look at a variety of possibilities from um, acoustic stimulation to electrical brain stimulation, uh, as well as temperature manipulation um, methods. Uh, we wrote a review um, a couple of years back trying to just gather together all of the different things that sort of researchers had developed over the years for the enhancement of deep non-REM sleep and tried to review those in the context perhaps of the aging brain. So I think we have a number of candidates that um, we can target and lots of other people are doing it. Um, some of those groups with electrical brain stimulation have already shown the ability to enhance the amount of deep slow wave sleep in healthy uh, older adults. And in fact, as a result, they showed slightly better memory performance the following day, better memory retention. So we're on this sort of precipice of starting to, I think, from a research perspective, explore methods for enhancing deep sleep in older adults. And if we can, can we salvage aspects of their learning and memory function? Or even more important, can we try to help fight off and stave off the onslaught of Alzheimer's disease pathology? Um, there was actually some lovely work by Brian Baxke at uh, Harvard, um, who was working in mice. And he showed that if you enhance slow brainwave activity um, during deep sleep through optogenetic methods of stimulation, you can actually halt or even decrease the formation of beta amyloid plaques in those mice. So we've already got sort of proof of concept in mice models. Uh, and that's why I think scientists are now motivated to try and do it in humans. Well, such a fascinating study. And uh, thank you so much for coming back on Inquiring Minds. Great to talk to you. Not at all. Lovely to chat and happy to come back on anytime. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Okay, it's Indre again. Now back to the rest of the show. All right, so what caught your eye this week? Well, for me, I was really enthralled by the big presentation from one of Elon Musk's many projects. Uh, okay. From a, uh, what are we going a, to space? A neurotechnology company called Neuralink. Oh, Neuralink, right. Neuralink. So um, really one of the most fascinating technologists of our generation, Elon Musk, uh, has a company that is interested in brain-machine interfaces. Mm-hmm. And they kind of came out of stealth mode maybe in, a year or so ago. They give these kind of cryptic, uh, you know, um, their patent uh, applications. Sometimes you see, sometimes things come off on BioArchive, which is kind of a preprint open access server. Well, last week they had a big hour long presentation of where they are, what they're working on, where they are. It's kind of a product showcase mm-hmm. and, um, and a, a pretty lengthy Q&A. And so it was roughly a 20 minute presentation uh, that uh, Elon Musk uh, gave. Uh, you know, and he was supported by various members of a team, both on the engineering side, on the neurosurgery side, and the animal care and welfare side. Mm. And uh, it was a really fascinating uh, presentation. Hmm. And I want to tell you about it. Yeah, I want to I tell hear you, um, you know, the what I thought were just really super exciting aspects to it. Mm-hmm. And I want to not deny some of the uh, positive, um, uh, I think, very optimistic parts of the presentation. It is easy to be a uh, skeptic, especially if you've come from you know, neuroscience labs like you and I have. And well, have so yeah, worked. so I think we should tell our listeners who don't know um, a bit about your background. Well, no, like you, I did a PhD in, in neuroscience. And so yeah. I did animal research and and, and But I in particular, in, you did electro neurophysiology. Yeah, neurophysiology. Where you were, yeah. You know, you were mm-hmm. um, My lab stimulating some, mm-hmm. and collecting data from neurons. Yeah, wake wake in... behaving animals. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly, exactly. And that's that is um that's uh in the same area that Neuralink is is yeah. moving towards. Their goals I'd say are much different than mm-hmm. what the goals of sort of a typical academic lab would be. Now there are many labs that have very applied uh, neural mm-hmm. kind of brain 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 uh, machine interface aspirations. These would be about um, anything from neurodegeneration to brain injury and spinal cord injury. And so that, that's really where Neuralink is going. That, that's where Neuralink is today. Mm-hmm. The, obviously, the lowest hanging fruit would be in some of these therapeutic applications. But Elon Musk and his team, they have much grander vision for what these devices can be used for. A lot of that came out in this presentation, which I think, Hmm. you know, sort of the academic neuroscientist me tends to bristle at because Hmm. it's not that they can't, we can't dream about those things, but they are such science fiction at this point that they're missed, you're leapfrogging over some of the nuances and challenges that are right here in front of us now to make any usable and wearable device. Mm-hmm. So let me just give you just okay. a brief overview of what, they, what they're doing. So they have a device they're just calling the Link. And the Link is now a uh, basically an implantable brain stimulator and neural, uh, neural activity recorder. Okay. So imagine something now that is about the size of two American nickels kind of one on top of each other. So it's about 23 millimeters in diameter, about eight millimeters thick. And what they 
the can do at that thickness, which is going to be a little bit less than the thickness of the human skull, they can then implant that device, right, embed it right in the skull, and then they have the fine microelectrodes that can be implanted right now and basically into the cortical surface. Okay, so the surface of the brain. Yeah, and they talk about how they hope that this is going to be a fully robotic, uh, automated surgery mm. um, that I could, I, I, I can certainly see why that would be beneficial. Um, it's a very laborious types of these types of intracranial recordings and animals in the labs are very bespoke. There are many grad students and postdocs mm -hmm. around the world do this all the time, and it's not a high volume scalable enterprise. And I think the Neuralink, uh, you know, uh, representatives made some good points is that, um, the current setups in the research, you know, in the research labs today they're not, they weren't designed for kind of high volume surgeries, right? No. I mean, these are really just trying to ask some basic scientific questions, if not some of the proof of concept for some of the therapeutic applications. And, and Neuralink scientists are truly coming into it, I think, with a more of a product, you know, mm. design engineering perspective, which I think is very valuable. So they've got the form mm. factor down to something which really does seem to be a step change over what you see kind of in the academic literature today. Like so, this is, so it's like the idea that even a healthy person would be having a Neuralink? Well, I mean, that's what that's what Neuralink, that's the vision they paint the in the future. Okay, got that it. this could be something, basically a consumer product mm -hmm. that people could have embedded. And now what you'd use it for, I'm not exactly sure mm -hmm. how many you'd need you know, and what areas of the brain would you like to, you know, be uh, recording from mm -hmm. or what I would say stimulating, you know, they, they use a lot of engineering speak, mm -hmm. um, which I guess what I took away, if I took one lesson away from this presentation is that it's not that they don't have biologically knowledgeable, bio, neuroscience knowledgeable and, um, you know, neurologists on staff. I think those people are there, but the forward-facing, um, you know, emphasis for this presentation was really on hardware, software. This is an engineering problem, and we're going to mm -hmm. take this engineering problem to where it's never gone before. I see. And that is all well and good. And I think neuroscience is one of the fields of biology that has benefited tremendously from people mm -hmm. coming in from other disciplines, yeah, right? True. You have physicists, you have computer scientists, you have mm -hmm. electrical bioengineers, so they can really make, they create new tools. Mm -hmm. That's all, that's really critical. But where this presentation fell down for me is that if it, it, they really glossed over or seemed to not, not ignorant of, I don't want to go that far because I don't know what's inside their heads. This was very much a promotional slash recruiting event for mm. the company. Okay. It certainly wasn't what you'd have at a neuroscience conference. Right. There was no data. God. Oh, there were, okay. you know, there were demonstrations of three different pigs. Okay. One pig was just a wild type, um, unimplanted, normal pig. I don't know exactly sure. <laughs> they just showed there. the pig okay. in its pen. <laughs> okay. I think it was for comparison purposes because they it. wanted to show the pig doing what pigs do, okay. eating and rooting and sniffing and walking. And okay, that's that All pig right. in pen one. Pen two was a pig who... Uh, that had an implanted uh, link. Device, okay. Device. All right. And you could see that its overt behaviors and weights looked and just stuff like looked, just looked like pig one. Okay. Now in pen three, we'll come back to pig two. Okay. Pen three was in a uh, uh, another pig that had a device, but it since had it removed. Oh. And so they wanted to show that you know, these, this, the, the removal of this device doesn't lead to any long-term consequences and that could be done safely. And um, because in the future, they 
would love to see a device that could be removed and upgraded. Oh, yeah, or every two replaced. years, right? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there is probably some product cycle. And so, right. you know, I'm trying not to be too negative okay. because it's easy to yeah, be poo-poo, you know, people who are trying to reach from the stars because if they land on the moon, it could be a real step change. And they're, they're the first to acknowledge that, although they provided no details, they're going to start a clinical trial in patients with spinal cord injury. They didn't give right. a timeline. You mm -hmm. don't, I don't know what they're going okay. to do. But um, that clearly seems like, you know, kind of the right application for this. The questions from Twitter, which inevitably got into science fiction land of, you know, is this going to help me play Minecraft? Can I like read and write my own memories into like a like a like an external form, like a robot? Like they, you know, they had to address these questions. Elon kind of, I think, sort of almost encouraged some of this thinking uh -huh. a little bit. That's the kind of neuroscience theater, which I think... You know, it, it maybe bristles people the wrong way, but... Um, well, it puts brainstorming in a whole new light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I have no doubt that the advances they're making in the automation and the hardware side, you know, they're doing some very... It seems like they're doing some very clever spike sorting oh. to, to, to pattern recognition to be able to interpret signals mm -hmm. in this small, low-energy type of implantable device mm -hmm. that seemed to me, again, you, you've done a lot of spike sorting in mm -hmm. your in your career. It seemed like they were doing some pretty clever, if not necessary, types of algorithms mm -hmm. to interpret the neural data. I mean, I do think that is really something that would be beneficial because I know, you know, yeah, in our lab, we had neuroscience students and maybe one engineer who were trying to really build these algorithms and, and, and you know, classify electrical signals as whether or not they're coming from a single neuron or multiple neurons or a or just like, you know, the television in the room, in the patient's room. So that was a, a big problem that we had to, you know, solve separating the signal from the noise. But even when you are able to tell whether the signal that you're getting is an actual cellular signal, what that signal means is a whole other story. And, and what you do with it. So yeah. right now, it's although they didn't explicitly state it, if you knew a little neuroscience, what they were showing you, like they had this one short clip where they showed the implanted pig walking on a treadmill, and they were okay. showing the neural activity, and they were doing basically predictions and the recorded uh, limb positions. Okay. And so they're basically showing that their algorithms were correctly predicting and matching the actual limb positions. So that's suggesting to me it was part of the motor output yeah. likely to be probably primary motor cortex. Yeah, which is actually pretty straightforward. Like that doesn't seem sure. out of the realm of possibility that what we could do in humans right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool. And so you could imagine that could be mm -hmm. useful for people who have paralysis right. or some sort of neurological condition where you wanted to use that high fidelity, highly accurate predictive interpretation of neural signals to control an external device. That's right. And that's my mm -hmm. prediction of probably what they're doing with a spinal cord injury patient or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think to go beyond that, though, to say we're going to do any number of neural enhancements or things, well, how many neural links do you need? Do you have one over sensory, one over motor, one mm -hmm. over medial temporal lobe? You know, do you put one over occipital? Like, how many of these things do you want? And, you know, what I, I guess I'm, I'm the use cases to me they mentioned one point, you know, like Alan, we talked, they talk about with depth and mm -hmm. they said right now they're, they're, they're just doing cortical surface, but they would like to go down to deeper parts of the brain. Um, but, you know, Elon said, well, we can basically address, you know, he said blindness and deafness and 
and a, uh, you know, a variety of things like just at the cortical surface. And I, I think that's not mm. untrue. I'm not saying you can cure them because we already have now things like retinal implants, which are trying to deliver, or cochlear implants, mm -hmm. which are trying to return that sensory input to the appropriate, um, you know, sensory cortices right. into the, 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 the pathways, the interpretation of these sensory inputs. And it's not like those people who, you know, have a pure play, you know, normal sensory experience. Mm -hmm. So it's just not that easy, especially and, with... And even, even in blindness, I mean, people who have had their sight, quote unquote, restored um, later on in life, some of them have actually found, uh, Oliver Sacks has written about this, that, that, that it was even more disturbing such that they actually wanted the surgery reversed because they didn't, their, their brain mm. hadn't developed, you know, the, the, the cortical processing tools necessary to interpret that signal. Right. And so the world just felt, you know, nauseatingly. That's interesting because a lot of the use, you know, people with spinal cord injury, people who have mm -hmm. degenerative retinal conditions like retinitis pigmentosa, these are people who have lived largely s s normal sensory lives and their mm -hmm. brains have been wired up for normal sensory input, but then it lo they lose it over time. So I could see how that'd be, mm -hmm, that, that could would, be different. you know, it'd yeah. be difficult to recapitulate that. And if you're sort of you know, if you're providing aberrant signals, that could be a very disorienting or unpleasant experience. Um, and and here's where now I'm going to be. And, and they they say they have uh, what's called breakthrough device designation from the FDA. I don't okay. know what they did to you know. I don't really know much about that. <laughs> okay. But I do know that that there are these these expedited pathways where you get more interactions with FDA, and so that all seems well and good. And so I don't doubt that they're making real progress, and, and I'm mm -hmm. excited about this. And of course, having Elon Musk involved, and just not just the financial resources, but the star power and the eyes and ears and the entrepreneurial and scientific talent that he can marshal to a mm -hmm. Neuralink. There's mm -hmm. 100 people. He says he wants 1,000, 10,000 people working at Con I love that. Mm -hmm. Because that's not generally what academic neuroscience do well. That's true. You know, it's yeah. kind of tell the story and paint the vision. Now let me tell you the stuff that I really don't like, which I think okay. is almost misguided and could lead them to failure. Okay. There is what Derek Lowe, a blogger and medicinal chemist uh, with a fantastic blog called In the Pipeline Talks, is the Andy Grove fallacy. The Andy Grove, you know, longtime Intel, you know, wrote a... Um, infamous essay, I believe it was called like why biologists can't fix a radio or something like that. And, you know, it's basically this notion that, you know, what an the Andy Grove fallacy is, is about the over, uh, the excessive application of engineering principles to biological systems mm. and the, and the, and the erroneous belief that these engineering principles can be used to truly solve all biology's problems, like, mm. you know, kind of, you know, applied biology. Mm -hmm. And what I sensed over and over again at this Neuralink presentation was, again, as I mentioned, this really heavy emphasis on engineering challenges mm -hmm. and giving the biological challenges short shrift. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a few examples. At multiple times in the presentation, Elon Musk referred to neurons as wires. And in, and in places mm -hmm. where, like in spinal cord injury, is where the wires get severed. And so he described a situation where two neural links, one up in the brain, one downstream of the insult to the spinal cord as a neural bridge to jump over that, that the disconnection can then help to quote unquote, like rewire the brain. And right. we know that's not true. You know, yeah. Neurons aren't static 
conduits of information the way a copper wire is. Neurons are living cells that are highly dynamic, that are subject to extrinsic factors and inflammation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I could go through a million things. And so if you have a spinal cord injury, you will have atrophy. You will have a whole number of biodynamic scarring, scarring yeah. dynamic yeah. processes. Right. It's not as simple of just saying, well, you know, I really need to solder these back together again, put some duct tape, and then I've solved it. Yeah. And you found that in numerous times. I already told you that you know, they refer to the capabilities of this device as being being able to read and write. Okay. Now, in our neuroscience backgrounds, we would talk about we record neurons right. and we stimulate them. Right. We don't refer to it in a very, you know, disk drive computer science language of we reading and writing. No, because and the stimulation stimulating is not, is, is not, know, is not forever, writing right? in the yeah. sense that we're basically changing the ones and zeros in our memory that's something that's going to be fixed yeah, no, and established. Mm -hmm. You know, it is true that neural stimulation can, under certain circumstances, lead to long-term synaptic changes. But that, that is quite different than just saying, look, I've got these implanted fine electrodes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stimulate them with a certain waveform, though I've written to the brain. Right. That is a very engineering way of looking at it, and it doesn't really appreciate the actual biological processes. And then the last thing I'll say is that People were asking, what are the biggest challenges you need to do? And they're talking, they're all very hardware and software focused questions mm -hmm. and answers. And like they asked, what are the biggest challenge? And they talked about the microfabrication of the actual electrodes. And I don't doubt that having a long term mm -hmm. implanted intracranial electrode is a big challenge. There's no yep. doubt. Keeping an electro in right place you know, that doesn't lead to damage to the neural tissue is a big deal and it stays high fidelity over time yeah. so it doesn't corrode. I get all that stuff. But they, and they, and they talked about how they have all these accelerated weathering, like almost like an engineer, like mm -hmm. a product engineer would say, we're going to submit it to a heat and, and rain right. and, you know, vibration and shock. All that stuff is, but they didn't talk about, well, how about an immune response? How about like a fibrosis response? How about like all these biological processes yeah, or that can the fact be that, like, elicited by a long-term embedded biological device in your in your in your brain? Well, I mean, when we, when we were recording from patients with epilepsy, those electrodes were only useful for you know seven to ten days because the neurons we were recording from were dying. Yeah, <laughs> over time. I mean, right. you know, they're right. yeah for whatever reason, whether it's because there's now you know uh, the infl inflama yeah. inflammatory response or you know because. But yeah, those those neurons don't last forever. Yeah, it's interesting because you know even the state of the art, like often the microelectrodes are movable. Yeah, you can move them up, you can move them down to be able to regain the signal That's that you've right. lost and things, and that that wasn't discussed. And hmm. you know, I looked really quickly on um, Neuralink's website because I mentioned this; they were very explicit. This was a recruiting event. You know, they kept talking. You don't have any neuros. Doesn't matter. We need people with product. If you if you deliver products, you've worked on hardware, robotics, software. Come and I think that's great. Oh. I think that's great. But of the say twenty five job listings in the Neuralink website, again, not one was like, "Do you have a background in biology? Do you have right. a background in neuroscience?" And I don't doubt because there are people there in on the panel who could clearly, when given the opportunity, speak to biology of the neuroscience of the brain, but. Um, I guess I, from my perspective, I felt like this was very much like a Silicon Valley technology presentation mm -hmm. that may ultimately lead to amazing devices that I think will be valuable even in the research community. But um, they may really run into the, uh, because if you don't understand the biology, you may run into um, the, the applications just won't work. 
You right. can have the greatest device ever, but to, to, to really interface and to be able to, um, you know, engage in some productive way, whatever that is with the brain, that might be really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there is a reason that people study biology. Uh, and if our friend Ed Boyden isn't involved with Neuralink, I don't know why. Because <laughs> he is ideal. He is yeah. an ideal person to be involved as a scientific I mean, advisor. Yeah, you know, Ed Boyden's, you know, uh, so 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 smart and and interesting that he might be the one who's like running the show. Who knows? <laughs> but I, speaking of engineering, I have a engineered product that I thought you would really like. Mm, um, we okay. were laughing how, today how um, you know you and I sort of have very different approaches to life. Where you know you're interested in getting solar panels put on the house so that you know we we diminish our energy footprint. And uh, even though you know the amount right now doesn't make financial sense because we we'd never recover that money. And um, I bought a cool barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay. Anyway, different priorities. Okay. Um, okay. So. This is a battery-free Game Boy that apparently uses the but the energy from the button presses and solar to power the device. So you could essentially have a Game Boy, old school from our childhood, um, that harvests energy from the user's actions, uh, and and so it, it will never run out of charge. I want to read this because I have seen in my life so many like repetitive actions that we as humans do that you think are just untapped sources of energy. Yeah. Now you've heard about these adaptive floors that basically use the vibrations of the crowds walking off them uh -huh. to basically generate electricity. I've thought many times as I've sat and sweated my butt off on a Peloton bike yeah. of like, can I just put some sort of inductive coil up against the 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 wheel well, I can't and basically power itself. yeah and just yeah. no no I, I want to no I want to not not power itself I mean oh I see yeah from my well, pedaling. You're, you're pedaling I was thinking with, could with, I use it as a charger the, the or something or, yeah or like charge a, your phone a charge yeah. my phone or charge a battery or something like that because I'm obviously it's showing me all the wattage of output <laughs> right. the power I'm putting and I'm just kind of like oh man it's, it's just going, going yeah it's just pure you know but and this you know obviously the button presses think of all the all the energy transfer just from clicking your thumbs. So that's cool. So anyway, I thought it was cool. This is um, by researchers at Northwestern and the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Uh, so look out for that new version of a Game Boy that I think, uh, you know, is well, so many devices now use very low voltage. You know, you can mm -hmm. see a lot of things, you know, becoming, yeah, more, more greener just mm -hmm. because they just don't require a lot of power. So that, that's really cool. Um, and a little bit more good news for you. I know that uh, people who have uh, not gone to the hair salons for months uh, because of the pandemic might be dyeing their hair at home and uh, maybe they're, you know, a little bored. They're reading about the cancer risk associated with permanent hair dyes. Um, there have been a couple of studies that have come out suggesting that um, women in particular who dye their hair might be more uh, at risk of uh, some cancers, uh, breast cancers in, in particular, it turns out that um, something like, you know, more than 50% of women and 10% of men over the age of 40 in the US and Europe uh, somehow use permanent hair dye. No kidding. Hmm. Um, and uh, that, that there, so, so this is a, you know, a really important question because if you have that big percentage of the population using it and it has even a small increase in risk of cancer, that could actually be a pretty big burden on the healthcare system. 
So this was a a nurse's health study of over 117,000 women based at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, um, which looked at uh, one of the questions that they had asked is whether or not these women dyed their hair. And they followed them. So the women did not have cancer when they began the study. They were followed for 36 years. Wow. Massive longitudinal study. And the good news is that the hair dye use did not uh, seem to correlate with an increased risk of cancers of the bladder, brain, colon, kidney, lung, blood, and immune system, or even most cancers of the skin or breast. Hmm. Um, Although there was some slightly increased risk of basal cell carcinoma of the skin. um, But interestingly, this risk was higher in women with naturally light hair presumably who mm. also have naturally light skin. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's more about the the composition of the skin that makes them more susceptible right. to this type of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I'm ready to blame the hair dye um, yet. Uh, there's also some, uh, for women who have naturally dark hair, there was an increased risk of Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and so there's some uh, question of whether darker colored hair dyes have higher concentrations of, of certain chemicals. Um, but of course, this is still an observational study. Um, we don't know what are the other factors that could account for it. But overall, the data looked compelling that it doesn't seem to be at least uh, a big risk in, in, if you're dyeing your hair. So you this can... had to be a subset analysis of a much larger study. 117,000 women? Yeah. They're not looking purely at. Oh no! Of course, uh, yeah, of course, of yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. This is. I think yeah. this is a, a ma- you know a study of of but a lot an, of different. It's things. an interesting hypothesis that you can test with a massive data set. So that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, I don't know who would get yeah. the uh, the funding for a thirty-six year old study. What about men? So the the study only included women. Oh, um, but you know, uh, so you know, yeah, we don't know. But well, good. now, if, now I'm I'm consi- I'm getting grayer every every year it seems. <laughs> yeah, so pull so. out that hair dye if you want. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter. And joining me today was... Adam Bristol. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.